Hey guys, before we get started today, I just want to let you know that we're having to postpone our Paper Menagerie episode. We will get to it at a future date. It also might be one of our extras. We are now on Buy Me A Coffee. And so if you want to go check that out on our website and throw some support our way, we'd really appreciate it. But without further ado, today we'll be discussing There Will Come Soft Rains by Ray Bradbury with a very special guest, Megan from the Book Rewind podcast. There Will Come Soft Rains by acclaimed writer Ray Bradbury was published in 1950. This science fiction story depicts a technological home that stands alone. The title of the story originates from a poem by Sarah Teasdale, which is included in the story. In this episode with special guest Megan Murphy, we will be discussing the theme of the story, the meaning of the poem within it, and the catastrophic events that led to this quiet dystopia. This is Analytical. Hello! Hello, hello. I'm Hannah. And I'm John. And we're your favorite literary nerds. Today we're joined by another literary nerd. Megan, how's it going? It's going pretty good. I'm, you know, I'm doing swell. Could be better, could be worse. I think that's about everyone. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about There Will Come Soft Rains by Ray Bradbury. And I kind of want to talk about the overarching theme of the story to start off. It's just a really interesting story because you just see this house living on its own. And I think it's kind of talking about how what we create will last longer than we do. That's interesting. I, I agree. It does kind of has like a legacy theme behind it where like what you put out is what's going to survive you. Like that kind of like the world is going to be nothing in a couple of years and whatever you create is going to be what's left. And does it really matter if no one is there to enjoy it? Man, that gets deep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the story is pretty deep. Yeah, yeah. I, def I definitely agree because it was just like... I was reading it and I was like, it's sort of like the, you know, how matter can neither be created nor destroyed sort of thing. And it's just like stuff will continue on even after humans and the world will just keep going as long as it can by itself. Yeah, I think we see that a lot with just the house talking to itself and it kind of reacts to the events around it. But we even see there's a scene that they describe where there is paint splatters on a wall covered in charcoal and the only thing paint you can see is from the people that were there and i think it's supposed to talk a lot about nuclear yes the nuclear bomb of hiroshima and nagasaki is that one yeah okay. those, those are the ones yep, that's the one sorry i'm really I'm glad bad you history. know your history yeah <laughs> um yeah so the silhouettes are definitely referencing that like the bomb went off and it like splattered the wall behind it except in the spots where the bodies were which were vaporized i would assume because we don't see any remnants of a skeleton or anything yeah so the story is pretty deep but it also is like portrayed in a way that's kind of beautiful i think it's really like a light written story about a very deep topic because it kind of focuses more on the house like that is our only reference to the humans that lived in this house before besides their absence i mean is the silhouettes no i agree and then you see a little bit about their dog that's still there and that is such yes. a sad part Oh, yeah, I highlighted that because I, I was able to pull the PDF and, like, I did the highlighting and stuff. And I was just like, oh, 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 that's just so sad. There's actually a, like, rule kind of in literature that you don't kill the pet unless that's something you really want to, like, play off of. Yeah. We talked about that, like, back in our high school English class. I remember Miss Botts referenced that. She's like, you don't kill the animal unless that is something that you want to play on in a theme. Yeah. So I always think about, like, iRobot. Like, that was a big thing for him, like, whenever his dog died. Yeah. And so in this one, it just kind of stands out because that's the only living creature we see. And it's not something that is created by technology. And it still is so sad because the house recognizes the dog, but it still doesn't recognize that he needs to eat. And it's probably, like, waiting for that assigned time to do so. And so the dog 
sadly passes away. Passes away. I love that. Like, <laughs> we're going to honor this dog. <laughs> so another thing when you say it's so beautiful is just the descriptions of the house itself. Like how they have nursery walls that glow and you see beautiful animals. And I just love Ray Bradbury's language in this story. It is just a five-page story on a PDF or printed out, but it's still just so beautiful and it's so simplistic as well. It is very simple. That's kind of like what I was talking about is the story like itself isn't very heavy or deep on its own. Like if you just look at the words, you're just like, wow, like it's just a story about a house. But then you're like, wow, like why is the house empty? And like it just continues to go upon its routine with no one to enjoy the routine or to like appreciate the routine. Like the robots don't really care if the routine goes on. They're just doing it because they have to. Like the house is automatic. It is not doing this routine for anyone, for anyone. Like not even itself. It's just doing it. Yeah, it's like, I enjoy how, like, very structured everything, it's like, it's like this time, this time, this time, this time, it happens specifically as what it's supposed to, and how the house is just like, well, we know, it's just, it sort of reminds me how when, so you know, like, ghosts and stuff, it depends if you believe in ghosts or not, so, like, ghosts will follow, like, their set path from life, and it sort of reminds me of that sort of thing, where everything is because it's like a, it's like a phantom memory, or like, someone loses a limb, they still sort of like a phantom pain in the limit and how the house is just continuing on even though it's lost. Like the human aspect, it continues on. I really like that. I like the phantom aspect of it because it kind of is like a ghost house where it's just standing on its own. It even does say that that's the lone house in the town, in a fictional town in California, I assume. But it's really interesting to see that, that comparison with the ghost as well. I do like that of it's just going through its motions without anyone there with it. It's such specific times too. It's like 8.01. Like, that's crazy. It's like 8-1. I'm like, that, that's weird. That's a very specific time to do something. Yeah, like 7-9, breakfast time. And like, of course you want the rhyming. I get that. But it's just like, it's very specific. I do think it's kind of reminiscent of when the time it was written with the 1950s being kind of rhyming and kind of, it seems, it does seem old timey in the aspects of the house. Which, I mean, at the time it was written, it would have seemed normal. And also, the date of being August 4th, 2026, I said, oof, that's too close for comfort. Back <laughs> in the 50s, that would have been fine. But right now, I'm like, that's too close. Yeah. I don't know. It was kind of shocking to me to read this and be like, yeah, we kind of are on track for an automatic house like this. Like, maybe not that sophisticated in that many years. But I don't know. Like, technology is developing logically, like, logistically, I should say. Yeah. Increasing by a number of laws. But it's just insane. Like, I could see a house like this in by 2026, honestly. So it is kind of way too close to comfort for me as well. I mean, there's already the vacuum cleaners. I do like the idea of the little mice, though, that, like, go and yeah. find the specific things. It kind of made me think a little bit of uh, Studio Ghibli with mm -hmm. the, like, little dust mites. Those things go out. Yes, I know, you know I know what you're talking about, yeah. The Spirited Away, yeah. With yeah, I love Spirited Away, things. yeah. <laughs> we reference so many things in this. <laughs> it, it also reminds me of, yep, okay. Did you ever see the movie Smart House? Or no. So I know Disney. of it. I know it's an yeah. original decom. But... Yes. And it's like sort of the same concept where it's like the house is run by like one specific entity. And it kind of seems this sort of thing where it's like the like the voice or like let's think more like Jarvis in Marvel, where it's like that thing's running the house, but there's also little bits that that controls that helps the rest of the house. And it does reference the brain at the end when there is the fire that destroys the house. It mm -hmm. says the brain was kind of controlling it and it was finally trying to put out the fire. And the fire was smart and went to the brain and destroyed that. 
which I thought yeah. was really interesting as well. Yeah, the fire really is played all on as the only thing of life that enters the house. Like, even the dog doesn't get this much screen time. The dog just kind of comes in and dies. Like, I think the dog was already dead to Ray Bradbury, but the fire is the only thing alive we see in this house. And he does give it a lot of life. He puts a lot of, like, soul into that fire. He personifies mm-hmm. the fire a lot, yes. That's what I wanted to I, say. I knew you did, yeah. <laughs> So I think we want to talk a little bit about the poem within the story. And I did Google it. It is a real poem by Sarah Teasdale. Because I was kind of like, oh, did he make this up for himself? Because writers do that. I also had to Google it and be like, is this real? <laughs> I just liked it. Oh, yeah. It is a really beautiful poem. So I think I'm going to read it. And then we can discuss it a little bit more. There will come soft rains in the smell of the ground. And swallows circling with their shimmering sound. And frogs in the pool singing at night and wild plum trees in tremulous white. Robins will wear their feathery fire, whistling their whims on a low fence wire. And not one will know of the war, not one, will care at last when it is done. Not one would mind neither bird nor tree if mankind perished utterly. And spring herself, when she woke at dawn, would scarcely know that we were gone. And I think that is a beautiful poem to choose for the story because it, it really embodies what I think he was wanting to write the whole story. It almost made me think if he saw that poem first and was like, oh, I'm going to write a short story about this poem. I definitely <laughs> yeah. think that's what happened. It, it, that's what it looked like to me. It would be interesting to see Ray Bradbury's writing process for this short story. Oh, yeah, 100% because, like, it really just, like, it pretty much encom- encompasses what we were talking about in the beginning where once things are gone, life finds a way and will continue. So I actually had misremembered what the story was about. I originally had thought it was kind of like showing how the ground and earth kind of overtook the house and how there were trees going through the house. And I think that's just me misremembering the end of it where the ho- the tree falls mm-hmm. in the house and causes the fire. And so whenever I was rereading, I was like, oh, it's not quite what I remembered it because we had read it for high school and probably in college as well. It's a very popular story for teaching. It is very heavily anthologized. I don't know if that's... Anthologized, I think. I don't know. One of those two. (laughs) We're not great with words. (laughs) Grammar's hard. And so I really think the poem is beautiful. And when I looked it up, it was also called Wartime, not just There Will Come Soft Rains. And I think that's also very interesting for the story of what caused this house to stand alone. As we kind of hinted at, there might have been a nuclear bomb that totally vaporized the people and left just their shadows. Yeah, that's definitely played upon. I, I think this is definitely, like, uh, if anything, if nothing else, an anti-war sentiment where Ray Bradbury is like, we have to be careful what we do to each other because this is our future. If we continue to, like, fight each other and kill each other, like, we will just start nuclear bombing each other and there will be no one left except the houses we built. And I don't know a lot about Ray Bradbury, but I feel like from what I remember, he was very anti-war in general, and a lot of his stories were kind of, like, warnings of that. I don't know... That for sure, I would I would say that, that I would say that with some like confidence that yes, but I don't know for sure. But I do know that his uh, novel uh, Fahrenheit four fifty one is like very like speaking out against like socially like like people like that's about burning books and he's just like against the burning of books, like censoring in yeah, general. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know specifically who Ray Bradbury was, but now that you're saying Fahrenheit uh, four four fifty one or whatever, uh, I do know that story. So then I was like, oh okay, now I know who that is, but. Uh, I'm not a huge short story reader uh, because I'm more of like a sciencey sort of person. <laughs> so like I like that more sort of stuff like that. But this was just like super interesting because I love how shorts like this story just tells you all you need to know in a very short amount of time. And it's just like this is all this like in five pages, all this stuff happens. You're like, whoa, that was really like in your face. 
Yeah, we've talked a lot about how I think there's a little bit of the iceberg theory going on here where there's a lot more under the surface that we aren't explicitly told. Like, we're not explicitly told these people are dead. We kind of insinuate it for ourselves. And we're not explicitly told there was a war at all. But I think with the poem and everything else going on, we can kind of infer that as well. I not would definitely agree that the, the iceberg theory plays a big part in this short story where we're told so little and then we just are like, we're getting so much from this. Like it doesn't, it never says anything about war. We're only getting told about the house and its daily goings. But we can infer so much about what led to this house being here alone with no humans and with just the robots left. And this dog that came all mangy and like used to be full and thick and fleshy, but now it's not. I think we can get a lot from when it was written. Since it was written in 1950, it would have been right after those bombings at the end of World War II. And I think Ray Bradbury would have been kind of hurt by that if he was an anti-war individual. And with the censoring and everything else that happened in World War II, I think that's kind of what inspired him to write Fahrenheit 451. Fahrenheit 451. I mispronounced that bad, I'm sorry. And then this story as well would, would have come from that as that time. Yeah, for sure. That was a very dark period of just history in general, and I think that he was inspired to write all of his short stories, and, like, I don't know. I'm not going to say all of them, because I don't know all of his works, but most of his, like, short stories, especially this one, and kind of focusing on that dark piece of history and working with it. Yeah, because you want to try to, like, it's that time of time of existence, or time of, the, the time in history when there was... I'm thinking of it as his short stories were easier because of the fact that in order to get the resources to do long books and you don't have the time or energy to actually put like a full novel, even though he did write full novels, but it's more of just trying to get your message across and being like, this is important. No one, it's like thinking I want to leave this short story because no one's going to read my full book and this has a message I want to leave, uh, to leave. And a lot of these short stories were originally published in, like, newspapers or magazines, which I think people read a lot more back in the past than they do now. Well, they were a lot more accessible in the past than they do now. Obviously, we have the internet, so we, ha we live in a time that is very accessible. But back then, like, you, you, like, if you wanted to go buy a novel, like, that was a lot of money. Just, like, go out and buy every novel you wanted to read ever. So, but you could get a newspaper subscription and just get that delivered to your house, like, every, I don't know, day, week? I don't day, know yeah. It was back then. <laughs> yeah. Newspapers are normally every day, I think. Really? Are they? I don't get the newspaper, so I, I don't know. know. Our town only does twice a week, but we're a very small town, so. I think my grandmother gets it every day. We used to only get it on Sundays, but I think you can choose what you get. And I knew, I know, like, Charles Dickens has originally um, published the Christmas story, no. Christmas Carol. Christmas Carol. A Christmas Carol, I'm sorry. A Christmas Carol was originally published, like, chapter by chapter in a newspaper. Oh, that's cool. And so it made it more accessible for people to read. This is getting to like a little bit of history here, but like authors also like for money reasons, like you had to get paid obviously. So like a newspaper, you could sell your rights to like write from the paper, like usually by word so that they would like make it really lengthy by like chapter and they would like really like play on that like by word, like price. And that's how they made their living. So like they didn't really get the fame and recognition they have now back then always. Like some did obviously, but not all of them. So a lot of them were just like selling like, their livelihoods to newspapers because they had to. Yeah. That, yeah, that makes complete sense because, like, the whole buying the books thing and getting access to it and the, the amount of time, like, they didn't have, like, a lot of automatic printing like we do now. Like, they had printing presses that were fairly automatic, but it still took a really long time, whereas, like, nowadays you can make hundreds of books in, like, an hour, you know? And in order to, to do, like, stuff in the... 
newspaper it was like you just have it once and you're like newspaper 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 like it's a lot easier and quicker to to publish I'm not sure where exactly this one was first published, but I just know in the 1950s in general, they did a lot of the magazines and newspapers. Is there anything you picked up from this story that you'd like to bring up? So I did not do a lot of highlighting, which is is weird for me. I normally highlight a lot in things. I think I was just reading it and was just going through like, whoa. But I definitely, what we were talking about before with the the fire and just the description of like the loss of the animatronics within the house and how they were saying like the mice were gone then like talking about the animals in on the walls like disappearing and the the brain quote-unquote trying to remove the fire from the house and trying to like self-preservation sort of thing and i just think that's very interesting about how easily everything was just gone when it's such a sup such a high tech for well them they thought like this was a big possibility in that time such a high tech entity being like just taken out by something as easy as fire you know or as people nowadays are like fire like it's a big deal but it's not like it's easy sort of easier to take care of than it was uh in the 50s and i just like thought it was very interesting how they like talk about what happens because of the fire like how in the kitchen then it will suddenly, the kitchen suddenly had like 10 dozen eggs, six loaves of toast. Like it just suddenly was going out of control and then it shut down. I thought that was really cool. I think it is an interesting kind of symbol with that actually, with how simple a thing as fire, which is very primitive mm-hmm. usually. Like, you know, the cavemen had fire, d- just completely destroys this advanced technology. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a very interesting symbol as well, like, looking for it from an English point of view. But looking at it from, like, the story point of view, it's very cool, I thought, or very, like, interesting as well to see that, like, his thinking was so backwards, or maybe not backwards, but so, like, old, like, so old. Like, the wood was, wood, the, the house was wood construction, which probably wouldn't have happened in a house this advanced. They probably would have, like, made it out of cement or something because it was, like, a modern house. Like, if you think of modern houses, they're mostly cement, like, constructed or, like. Yeah. Yeah. Usually just cement, really. <laughs> um, but if, and the, uh, the brain was bronze which I thought was the most interesting part because there's like, it was bronze constructed, which like was unheard of. Like now, like, like circuitry is not bronze. Usually it's gold or copper or something like that. Like something more like better at conducting. Yeah. But for the brain to be bronze, it was just like, wow, this is written a long time ago is what it made me think. Yeah. Really dates it. That's for sure. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I didn't even look at the bronze aspect of it, but it did feel like the story was dated. Like even without knowing it was 1950s, it did feel like it was an, old idea of a new house which i'm sure if i rewatch smart house i would also be like oh this is so 90s like oh because it is <laughs> i think there's very interesting personification as well with the fire how we use like 20 snakes whipping over the floor that that's what kills the fire it's like green venom and it's a very interesting comparison he makes there as well like how he has animals be these animatronics mm-hmm and I think Ray Bradbury had to do that for a very specific reason because his story just felt so unalive. Like if he was, like he just was, I bet like this went through very many iterations where it was just like he talked about the computeristics and like the animatronics and like he was just like, wow, this story just feels so dead. So he kind of put that life into it by like playing on the like aliveness of the things that weren't alive by really personifying them. He really did a beautiful job, I think, doing that especially, if nothing else. Like and obviously the whole story is amazing, but that I think is one of the best parts of the story is the personification. 
Yeah, because that's when they bring in the whole like one, two, three, four, five voices died, and it's not like a it's not a actual living voice. It's the animatronic voice, but it's it's bringing that realism to our being like, well, it's actually it's. No, I wouldn't say realism. I would say more of just bringing a life to the house that's just all mechanical. I agree. And I think it's also with like the rhymes, how it said like the nursery rhymes and how it felt like it was children dying alone in a forest. Like that line really hit me. I was like, that's a deep line that he like put in there with the animatronics being like children. Like they are new, they are infantile. I think it's kind of interesting because, like, we do, like, see that, like, the silhouettes of the people that have died. And, like, that is just, he remarks so little on that. Like, they're just shadows on a wall. And that's it. Which I think is important for a story to, like, for us to, like, get scope of, like, hey, they're all dead. And, like, they're shadows now. So, you know, like, nuclear. But it just, like, in the broad sense of the story, like, he really doesn't remark on it much. Like, he does focus way more on the, the house's inner workings and, like, the robots in the house and the fire itself. Like, he does a lot more making the fire seem alive than the shadows. I think that was on purpose. He wanted the shadows to be just that, shadows. They are the memories of the people that once lived there. Yeah, and I like how they never specifically say that the house was completely destroyed because it ends with the voice saying over and over again that today is August 5th, 2026. So that's pretty much just saying, like, it is over, but it's not over. And actually, it's really interesting because I didn't get it the first time I read through. But at the beginning, it says today is August 4th, 2026. And then it says it repeated the date three times for memory's sake. And so I think at the end of the story, it's still going to go through its entire track of the day. It is ready just to go through the motions again. So even if it did get partially destroyed, the house and the technology in it are still running. And that last line really does that great job of um, playing on the theme of the story that just, like, it will go on. Like, humans, like, kind of, like, playing onto that futility of, like, human life even. Just, like, humans aren't that important for, like, in the broad scope of things. Like, we're just a blip. Yeah. And, like, the things we create might be here still. They might not. Like, this thing just got destroyed, but it still is existing or trying to at least. I think it's an interesting story as well where technology is existing on, but it's not, like, trying to evolve and take over because i think a lot of science fiction stories you see the technology starts to take over like you see like the evil house and like evil smart house or whatever yeah and this one is just trying to keep going it's not trying to be like a villain yeah definitely and i would say it's even like trying to be good because it is still doing the things it's required to do like it's still going through its daily scope it's still making the food even though no one's eating it like I think in like a different sci-fi story, this definitely could become like a, oh, the house became jaded towards the people that weren't eating, towards the creatures that weren't there anymore. Yeah. Like it just kept doing its things in futility. But this house just seems almost happy to keep doing it. It just keeps doing it. I think that's a like difference in that dystopic nature we kind of referenced to earlier. In some dystopias, you would see like technology thriving on, but had eradicated humans itself. In this instance, humans eradicated each other and technology kept living on. So that's why I called it the quiet dystopia. Yeah, so, like, because, like, this is less of, like, an AI sort of thing going on. This is more of just, like, it's set for these specific tasks, and it doesn't really run the house. It more of, like, just tells other things to do what it needs to do. It's So that's why, I like, when you're saying, like, the house taking over and stuff like that, and it seems less malicious and more just, like, I'm just going through my motions because that's what I'm programmed to do. 
Yes, it definitely seems like more of a computer program just running its like tasks and not well i would say it seems itself. like that until the like towards the end where we get that fire coming in that's where the house like it freaks out so yeah mm -hmm. the house just seems like it does go through its um routine until the end where it does like get that personification so i think ray bradbury was kind of playing on that like in the beginning the house is just doing its thing and then everything's all right and then we get that shadow because it does kind of like we don't know what's wrong with the house until we see the shadows like nothing is really wrong until he starts to play onto like the things that are missing. Because yeah. the house is just doing its thing. We're just like, oh, that's a really cool house. And then it's like, <laughs> oh no, that is like a really cool house. That's only like there. That's the only thing there. And yeah. then he plays on like the fire coming in, and the house is trying to survive the fire. Yeah, because like they're going through the the house is like making food, but then it cleans up the food, and then it's gone. So everything's nice and clean, and the the mice are doing their thing. But then you really like that. That's what you're saying. We're the part when things start going wrong is like the outline of the people, and then suddenly you have this like this like bone and sorry dog, you know, and that's like when things really go crazy, and you're like, what's happened here, you know? You just keep thinking, what happened? How can this? Why is it like this? And then everything goes nuts. I think he does a little, a very little, to answer that question of like what has happened. It's just those shadows, and that's a very – it's a good way to write because it makes you think for yourself a little bit more. Yeah. It's a lot of the showing, not telling. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that if he, like, mentioned the shadows or the silhouettes, rather, that he, everyone would know what he's talking about because this was right after World War II. Like, I bet those stories of the bombs were circulating as propaganda even, and just, like, we were celebrating the victory, but also we were getting out the horrific part of the war. Like, I'm sure that the silhouettes from Hiroshima and Nagasaki were seen everywhere. There were probably pictures circulating at this time that was just, like, this is what you guys did. Like, it was probably anti-U.S. propaganda, and the U.S. was probably using it as pro-U.S. propaganda at the same time. Like, mm -hmm. we were celebrating our victory while everyone else was, like, mourning their loss. Like, it was a terrible loss. Like, it really was oh yeah but it was like at the time necessary like the u.s thought so it's just like i think ray browder was really playing to the times of when this was written i think we see that throughout the whole entire story with how dated it is yeah because i took um when i was in college i took a full year of japanese and i took one semester i did an entire like culture class and i learned a lot about like the backlash of everything after the bombings and stuff like that and it's just very interesting seeing the world from a different point of view because in this story it tells us like sort of what happens after the fact whereas like a lot of times when they tell stories then the heroes go home and you hear their story you don't hear what happens to the people that were attacked you know yeah, we've taken a lot of spanish classes and i think taking spanish also it shows you different point of views of history like we talked about like Christopher Columbus and they're like, no, he's trash. Uh, uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> Indigenous People's Day. My boyfriend's, uh, he has some Native American in him. So it's like, uh, Indigenous People's Day, 100%. We don't. <laughs> like we talked about like the Bay of Pigs and I had never yeah. like, learned that from a his like American history point of view, but she taught it from like Cuba's point of view. And she's like, yeah, no, the U.S. failed miserably. And usually U.S. doesn't teach about their own failures. Well, I mean, history is written by the victor. That's a very important thing to know, and I think it's very true, like, throughout everything. Like, I would argue that all history is just propaganda. I mean, honestly, but that's just... <laughs> Getting a little political on yeah. us, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, no, no. I, I, yeah, we we bring in the, the politics. <laughs> I feel like a lot of short stories have a basis in politics because... You just, you want to tell that, especially if it wasn't like a newspaper, 
it's next to, it's probably next to a segment about, depending on when it was released, something happening in the town or something happening in the world, you know? So it's, it's hard to not connect those two things together, short stories and like politics or um, just like history in general. Well, and it definitely makes sense from a writer's point of view, because if you make your story more topical, then it's more popular at the time. Like, people want to read about what's going on, and if they can read about what's going on in a nice, like, fun little short story that's about death and everything, they're like, oh, wow, look <laughs> at this. It's so cute and cool. Yeah. I definitely think there's an interesting point of view with that as well, the politics aspect, where they could do it in a very subtle way, where people could be like, I agree with this short story, and then the writer's like, well, these are my actual views, and they'll be like, oh, no, I, I didn't know that. I think we see that a lot with the Crucible how he was really putting them on blast for the, like, witch trials, like, the Red Scare trials they did. Yeah. McCarthyism. Yeah, with McCarthyism, and then how they he compared it to the Salem witch trials. So, yeah, I think there's a lot there to say of, like, writing is to teach us about our own world, and in a very good way where we can interpret it. It's like the, if you forget the past, you're gonna repeat it sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I, I like reading and stuff because I, I I always fall into the idea that people are afraid of intelligence and that's why things are like I'm under the, the idea that if that's why college is so expensive because people are afraid of intelligence and so the more educated people you have the I think the better society will be but it, that's why we need stuff like this to to reread and have history and that's why like you know like the library of alexandria when it was destroyed it was such a it caused pretty much a a a restart of everyone's like knowledge base so like the world being round like how the solar system works and stuff like that it was all we all we knew all that and then because it burnt we lost all that knowledge and that's why i love like the internet and having like this technology thing allows us to continue and keep seeing what we read and research and like, how else could we read this short story from 1950s? You know, we couldn't have done that before. You find a textbook with it. Yeah. And it's only the ones they choose to put in the textbook. This way we can find any short story, which I really do like as well. Yeah. I think there's another interesting point where they, he does personify the house a lot by calling it like manic and paranoid and how it would really freak out when anything got close to it. Any other animal got close. He, the house shut down, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting. Uh, like, were the people also manic and paranoid where they didn't want anyone around? And was it in that like Cold War time? I guess it wouldn't have been quite the Cold War, but in that like post-World War II time where they were on edge just waiting for like the other shoe to fall. Yeah, because if if you're trying, if you have like all this nice th- these nice things, you want to protect it. And if you set you like, I'm gonna make my house protect itself. You're pretty good, like like having like a ring doorbell or something like that. You know, it's to protect your house or any sort of uh, home security system. I don't have one. We just have a sign that says we do. But <laughs> I think we might too because <laughs> it's from the people who owned it before. <laughs> a lot next to the beware of dog sign <laughs> so if, if you beware our dog it's just because he'll jump on you and maybe tinkle a little bit he is the same but like <laughs> but if you see a pit bull in the doorway you're less likely to walk in so but usually bullies are the ni- nicest dogs oh she's the she's my precious angel <laughs> but 
Well, Megan, is there anything you'd like to add to this story before we close out our episode? No, I think I've covered everything. I think I have as well. I just want to say, like, once again, like, we could analyze our story forever. It really is a beautiful oh, story. Yeah. I definitely recommend you guys read it. And we hope you guys will reach out to us with your thoughts. And Megan, do you want to plug your podcast and where they can find you? Yeah, so I am the host of a podcast podcast the the can never say the word podcast right uh called the book rewind and so what i'm doing is i'm rereading books that i read as a child or young adult so it's mostly like right now i'm doing well-known stories so i started with twilight i'm doing the harry potter series right now and so we're just rereading it and judging it harshly from an adult's point of view so if you want to find the book rewind you can go to like instagram twitter facebook tiktok all under the book rewind pod we're also on spotify pretty much any podcasting network we're there so yeah yes and we tuned in for chamber of secrets it was a lot of fun well, listeners, thank you for tuning in, and we'll hope you'll check out the book Rewind. It's a really great podcast. Thank it's a you. Lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you so much. Analytical is created, hosted, and produced by Hannah and John Newland. It is edited by John Newland. The artwork was created by Hannah Newland using Logo Maker and is owned by Hannah and John Newland. The theme music you're jamming to now is created by John Bartman, and you can check out more of his work at his website, johnbartman.com. Web design is by Hannah Newland, and you can find us at analyticalpod.wixsite.com analytical. And you can find that link in the description. All our social pages are at analyticalpod, and you can email us at analyticalpod at gmail.com to reach out and discuss your thoughts on this episode, to chat about literature, or life. Please rate and review us and subscribe to our podcast. And tell your friends. It will help other people find and enjoy as well. It's just